Welcome to the Report Card, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Just before Christmas, President-elect Joe Biden announced Miguel Cardona as his pick for U.S. Secretary of Education. Now, if you haven't heard of Cardona prior to Biden's announcement, you can be forgiven. Just two years ago, he was an assistant superintendent in a small school district in Connecticut. And now he's in line to head the Department of Education. What does Biden's selection of Cardona suggest about what we might see in education in the next four years? And what are the chances Cardona will be able to accomplish Biden's agenda? On this episode of the Report Card, I talked with two education mavens about the challenges and prospects facing Secretary-designate Cardona, Rick Hess and Andy Rotherham. Rick Hess is a resident scholar and the director of education policy studies here at AEI. Andy Rotherham is a co-founder and partner at Bellwether Education Partners. He previously served in the Clinton White House as special assistant to the president for domestic policy. Rick, Andy, welcome to the report card. Hey, good to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. So before we get to Miguel Cardona, can we talk about what it takes to start a job as the secretary of education? And, And Andy, I'll ask you to kick this one off, but what are just the basic building blocks of the job that a secretary has to put together to get a new administration's Department of Education up and running, even in a non-pandemic year? Well, I think so many things have happened over these past few decades that really arguably the last secretary to come in in, in sort of a quote-unquote normal way was probably Margaret Spellings. That was a you know, second term re-election. You know, Rod Page came in in the wake of the Florida election in 2000. And so there was, you know, there was a lot of both bad feelings and a lot of hope that maybe something could get could get done on NCLB. Arne Duncan obviously came in sort of in the middle of a huge economic crisis where recovery and education's role in recovery was front and center. He had an unprecedented situation where through ba- really a few paragraphs of text, like define the authority that they were going to operate under for what, what came to be, you know, eight years really up until ESSA. And then DeVos came in, you know, after this election that for a lot of people, you know, was shocking and tumultuous and, and you know, but even in 2016, like serious people were asking, like, you know, Trump had never held public office. What was it going to be like? I don't think people necessarily anticipate everything that that's happened, but there was big questions about what was this going to be like? And so, so I think we've lost sort of that sense that you have, you have to go back to 2004, 2005 to get any sense of normalcy. I mean, look, I think the big thing with this job, I'm always struck, K-12 is important and is a big part of what we do, but this agency does an enormous amount of stuff on higher education and the the sort of bidding about it in the media and among the pundit class and everything else is always K-12 focused. To go back to using uh, Spellings as an example, like the last couple of years of her term, she was incredibly focused on higher ed and financial issues there. That didn't get like a lot of headlines, but in terms of like, you know, her schedule and how she was spending her time, it, it was quite a bit of that. And so I think that that's the, that it's a it's a broad agency that covers a lot of things. The stuff that people talk about, that pundits care most about, you know, charter schools and choice and this kind of stuff tends to actually be relatively marginal in the overall scope of the policymaking. Rick, anything you want to add to that? Big building blocks that he's got to take care of right off the bat. Yeah, I mean, first off, I think Andy, he's got this just right. I mean, I'm sure there's another cabinet department where there's as big a disconnect between kind of the popular coverage and the actual job, but I don't know what it is. You know, the Department of Ed has frequently been described as a higher ed lending bank with a small education agency attached. 
but you would never get that if you pay attention to most of the people who are, you know, writing and talking about this stuff. Uh, look, what that means is there's a couple big pieces of the job. One, especially given the Biden agenda's emphasis on higher ed, free college, student, you know, student loan forgiveness, the rest. There's a lot here that involves complicated levers in higher ed, either what a secretary's already allowed to do or what kind of legislation they'd like to push. And, and, and there's nothing in Cardona's background that suggests he's deeply versed in this. So he'll have to get up to speed and he's going to need staff around him. Second is obviously what we're living through in this country in terms of the polarization is obviously both a left-right divide that has grabbed schools on things like reopening and COVID response. And also you see it playing out in the Democratic Party. So I think as far as the bully pulpit and the leadership role, uh, the challenge for Cardona is going to be to see if he can find the phrases, the positions, the, the, the moves that are going to allow him to play this kind of unifying role that there seems to be an appetite for, at least, you know, from President Biden, uh, that's going to be a heck of a lift. You know, I don't know that anybody could be prepared to play that role. You know, we're just going to have to watch and see how he fares. The one other thing I think on this, this point of what we pay attention to and what's real. So obviously the education secretary matters greatly to education policymaking, but I always find it also interesting. There's other agencies that oversee it to different degrees, interior with overseeing, you know, BIA schools, uh, agriculture, overseeing a lot of food programs that affect kids, labor, obviously, just because education is such a labor dominated sector and, and the attorney general in a big way. And, and one of the things we saw this past administration is where DeVos clashed with Jeff Sessions on issues, you know, education always got rolled and, and lost those fights. And then finally, defense has has a role here. And so I, I'm not in any way minimizing Cardona or the role, but it's just that there are different agencies across the government that have, you know, sometimes big footprints on what happens with schools, and we don't tend to pay a lot of attention to them. Sure enough. Well, you mentioned Miguel Cardona's preparation. So let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, he was relatively unknown before this nomination. It was sort of a surprise across the board. Prior to being named uh, Connecticut's Commissioner of Education in 2019, he was an assistant superintendent for teaching and instruction in Meriden Public Schools, which has less than 10,000 students. I mean, this is a small district. And it was just five years ago, he was an elementary school principal. So if you're President-elect Biden, why do you choose somebody like Cardona? I mean, why wouldn't you go with somebody with a longer resume, higher public profile, arguably more experience and preparation for the job. Andy? Look, I actually think if you were to, at this moment in time, you know, go, and I, I wrote something to this effect, go into a laboratory and sort of, you know, build a uh, U.S. Secretary of Education out of sort of spare parts from teachers and, and education commissioners and wonks or whatever, this is probably what you'd end up with. I think Biden didn't want to have out of the gate a uh, holy war on some of these big flashpoint reform issues, which are real, these issues around accountability, uh, around uh, choice. These are real fissures in the Democratic Party. And then on top of that, you've got this immediate response with COVID. And so he found someone who has managed to walk the line, listen to and work with both sides on the reopening debate, and is sort of in the middle on a lot of this other stuff. And, and so I think it was a good pick. And, you know, maybe, look, we may be getting to a point where, you know, we're going to start picking ed secretaries like Supreme Court justices. We're having like a long paper trails, you know, a liability, not an asset. And so I think in those ways, it, it was it was a good pick. If there's a concern 
the inside baseball concern is that he's going to be heavily reliant on staff during the learning curve because this is a big step up. He was assistant superintendent of a small district, you know, a year and a half ago. And in Connecticut, quietly, you've heard some people raise questions about that. And that like in this issue of, you know, interagency pushing and shoving and, and, and regulations and stuff where Ed may be at odds with, with justice and things like that, those things will matter. So those are the concerns. But in general, I think it was a, it was a great pick. Uh, there's nothing in his record that seems like disqualifying, that doesn't seem like he can't put in the work to get where he needs to go. But I think, I think we're happy. To, honestly, I think a lot of people are relieved I just don't think a lot of people really had the energy for like wanted to have like this holy war fight and were super glad, at least on the reform side, that we weren't setting ourselves up for just like a huge battle about politics. I think Cardona does create an opportunity. As Rick said earlier, you know, Biden has said he wants to move forward. It creates an opportunity to potentially focus on some hard questions of policy and practice rather than these sort of political fights that animate Washington. Yeah, Rick, Andy sort of alluded to where folks on the left have had reactions. Uh, for you, uh, for friends on the right, what's the reaction on that side? You know, I mean, I think Andy touched on this. That I think the best analogy for Cardona is one of these Supreme Court justices where you want to make sure they've never written a word. Uh, we talk <laughs> about them as stealth nominations, right? Cardona is a stealth nomination. David Souter is the model here. Because look, Biden had promised on the campaign trail he was going to name a public educator. The big fights, as we just mentioned, in the Democratic Party are over things like testing and charter schooling. And Biden really didn't want to get in the middle of this, like Andy said. One way out of this would be to have named a college president. But you can try to twist. But nobody really thought when he said public educator, he meant like the president of the University of X. They thought he meant somebody who'd been a K-12 teacher. Right. And so this was a nice way out of that box. To Andy's point, nobody knows what Cardona stands for. It was interesting. You could see this in the early coverage. People grab a quote here kind of out of context. But look, the guy's only been running the Connecticut state bureaucracy for about 18 months. And for folks who aren't deep, deep inside, state education agencies are important, but they're also pretty small, pretty weak, bureaucratic little entities. Before that, the guy was an assistant superintendent in one of Connecticut's, you know, smallish districts. So, look, we don't know what the guy's about. I think on the right, you, you didn't see much reaction. You saw a couple of efforts. Um, Jeannie Allen at the Center of Ed Reform wrote a piece which said, see, he's open to reform. He wants schools open. Okay. But I think mostly you've seen a degree of silence. You haven't seen attacks. I think that's good. Look, Cardona strikes me. He's got a wonderful story. The guy grew up as a non-native English language speaker, grew up in the projects, went to like Connecticut State, became a you know, teacher, a young principal. Love it. Fantastic. Seems like a really good guy from like the couple of brief remarks. I don't know him at all. But look, one of my frustrations the last four years was what I think was a horrific and torture double standard used to attack uh, Betsy DeVos over and over again. Uh, the early coverage blamed her. She had never worked a day in Detroit or Michigan schools in her life. But from day one, she was being blamed for the plight of Detroit schools, which I thought was ridiculous. Uh, here is somebody who had been active in the school choice movement for decades, who uh, had run, had been an executive uh, in family businesses, uh, who was attacked as having no managerial experience. I thought that was ridiculous and uncalled for. Look, 
I don't think Cardona's got a lot of management experience. I don't think it's real clear what he stands for, but that's okay. I think we need to get out of this clickbait, social media, hot take. We have to like love or hate a nominee within, you know, 14 days of being nominated. Cardona seems like a good guy. I think folks on the right have generally received him accordingly. Let's give him a chance. Let's see what he has to say. Let's what he do, see what he does. And I think folks on the right are going to fight him. They're going to, you know, go after him when they disagree. But let's disagree because we disagree about an issue. Let's not disagree because we've decided that we want to go after this, you know, guy who seems like a perfectly sincere, perfectly committed educator. Now, we can litigate Betsy DeVos later. I suspect Rick and I have slightly different takes on her on her tenure. <laughs> but I do think when she came in, I do, I do think it's a fair point that when she came in, she was criticized for everything that was wrong in Michigan because she had been this, um, you know, omnipotent force up there. And yet, like everything that was good in Michigan was somehow not her doing. It was there was there was definitely like an intellectual dishonesty to the debate. But that's like part and parcel. But as I said, I think Rick and I probably disagree on her tenure. I do think with Cardona, we people can overplay that he's a totally blank slate. He has a record on a bunch of very salient issues. The achievement gap, English language learners, assessment, teacher evaluation, school segregation, uh, and diversity. I mean, he's taken positions on these things, either because he's had to as commissioner, because of work he did when he was a superintendent and coming up. And so I do think we can overstate this idea that like this guy's like fresh out of grad school and like who knows what he's about. You know, he did a bunch of things, including he co-chaired an important commission up there on the achievement gap, Connecticut, you know, having having one of the country's worst uh, achievement gaps. And so there is there is some I think there are some clues. um, There are some clues in his record. And speaking for myself, something I think is really compelling about his biography is, you know, he in high school was on one path uh, and then he pivoted. Uh, and I think that's actually hugely important because one of the problems that I see with a lot of DC policymaking is it's mostly made by people who did really well in school. School is a rewarding place. And they were basically on a pretty linear path to sort of selective competitive undergraduate, some sort of professional or graduate training, sort of very similar consulting or other kinds of professional experiences. Um, and I think it's really useful to hear from most Americans don't live their life like that. They zig, they zag, you try to figure out what you're, what you're going to do. Um, and I think having somebody who actually has, has, has lived that and, and thought about that, um, could be really important in some, especially as this whole issue of post-secondary and CTE is going to be on the agenda. No, no argument with that. Two, two other points I would suggest though, but one to Andy's point about Connecticut, going back to the passage of No Child Left Behind was famous for the size of its racial achievement gaps. Given the degree to which DeVos, who was never an official in Michigan or Detroit, was blamed for the quality of Detroit schooling, it's striking to me that not one word of coverage has tried to apply that same standard to Cardona. Nobody has suggested that Cardona, in any way, shape, or form, should bear any responsibility for Connecticut's achievement gap, which is fair. The guy's only been commissioner for 18 months. The commissioner doesn't have much power. He should not be held responsible for Connecticut's legacy of performance, but neither should she have. The, uh, the other thing I'll say is, to Andy's point about some of Cardona's public remarks, one remark which I've found troubling, but again, I don't want to make too much out of, you know, a couple of speeches delivered by a commissioner, is he seems to be buying into this, what feels like um, progressive line, that middle-class families, suburban families are fine that there's no problems uh, with how they have experienced a pandemic educationally, that they're not, they're not 
um, wrestling with problems, that the real issue, the real issue is for kids in low-income families and for black and brown kids. Now, look, if you want to say that kids who are in low-income families, that kids who are stuck in, you know, small, uh, small apartments or whose families are up, that they have particular challenges or wrestling with, absolutely. But this idea, this kind of cavalier insistence that all of these other families are fine, I find really troubling. And again, I don't want to read too much. Maybe I was misreading him. Maybe it was taken out of context. This is one of those things that I'm going to be watching how it unfolds and seeing what the department says and does as far as, you know, who it seems to presume is actually been challenged by the, the by COVID, whether it is all parents and all students or whether it is only some. That's actually a really interesting observation. I haven't heard Cardona say that, so I can't respond to those specific remarks, but I have a very different concern, which is that we're going to spread federal relief around like peanut butter, which is what we usually do, rather than focusing on the kids who I do think have been disproportionately uh, impacted like this. I don't think, I think with COVID in, in general, just given the structure of American life, the impacts have not been uh, have not been evenly felt. That doesn't mean they haven't been felt in all communities in different ways and so forth. You know, as with most things, we don't do ecological fallacies well here, but I, I do think there's been a disproportionate impact. There's a huge equity crisis that's unfolding and some of the rhetoric and some of the proposals so far, I, I think could lead someone to worry that we're going to do the normal thing we do, which is is spread it around. You know, like, for example, if we're going to spend, you know, north of $45 billion on testing, like it is worth asking what else could you instead maybe spend $45 billion on from an equity standpoint, or how could you how could you target that? And, and, and so I think there's some concern. Uh, there's some concern there, which is obviously goes in a different direction than your comments. So before we move on to those things, we've been talking a little bit about the love and hate and the, the measured debate, which makes me think about Senate confirmation hearings immediately. You know, Betsy DeVos famously had a contentious and combative hearing, came down to Mike Pence as the tie-breaking vote. Briefly, do you expect Cardona to have uh, similar fireworks? Uh, it's a 50-50 Senate, after all. I think he'll be uh, okay. And the big thing after Georgia like everybody talks about Senate control, but anybody who's worked around the Senate knows what a misnomer that idea is. But what does matter and what mattered uh, with the Georgia races is control of the committee. There's an agenda setting function. There's there's even, even under what I assume will be a power sharing agreement similar to the one we saw the last time, the Senate was 50-50 was two decades ago. Being on the right side of that 50-50 like makes a difference. Um, and so I think he'll be fine there. I am reluctant to predict anything about what might happen on the floor now because there seems to be such a big split among Republicans over how to respond to what happened on January 6th. And there may still be more fireworks to come. There's going to be uh, some sort of impeachment action, it appears. And so I just think sort of all bets are off on what people's mood is going to be around any of this. Like, it's probably pretty easy to figure out like how a, you know, a Mitt Romney or, or a Lisa Murkowski or someone who's a real states person is going to act, but there's 50 people on either side. And I just don't, I, I maybe Rick is, is more of a Republican Senate caucus whisperer, but I just, I, I, I'd be leery to predict. It seems very on the, the reception he would get. I think he, he seems like a safe bet to be confirmed, but how all these nominations get subsumed by these larger politics, I, I don't know. Well, Rick, I wonder if Republicans on the Senate side are out for a pound of flesh feeling, you know, Betsy DeVos was 
absolutely hammered and what's good for the goose? Uh, you know, I, I think under other circumstances, I think if Biden had nominated uh, Lily Eskelson Garcia, you would have seen that play out. You know, I, I think what Andy says makes a lot of sense. I, I, my, my own bet is that I think Cardona's confirmation is going to be a cakewalk. I don't think, you know, there are absolutely uh, nominees like Becerra that I think Republicans are going to want to go after hard. Um, I don't think Cardona is going to be there. If Cardona had had a, a, a strong paper trail of being anti-school choice uh, or something like that, they might he might have wound up in the crosshairs. I don't think there's anything there. He seems like a good guy. I don't think Republicans are going to like the optics of making him one of the guys are going to go after. Uh, look, I mean, Andy's point's a fair one. It's possible that some, you know, that, that, that some number of Republicans uh, wind up voting against all the Biden nominees, that Hawley and Cruz continue this crazy stunt stuff they're doing. It's not the way I'd bet, but, you know, but that's certainly possible. Uh, but even so, I would expect, you know, they're, they're not going to stop things from running forward. So Cardone gets, even under that scenario, plenty of votes. And I think the media covers, covers it as all of the gettable votes go for him. But honestly, I just think even through all of the crazy politics that Andy points out, you, you know, when you pick and choose your fights, I don't think Cardona is going to be a fight that the Republicans feel like picking right now. That seems reasonable. And as I said, I think I think he, he'll be confirmed. I, the tenor of the tenor of all this seems a little bit TBD to me, just given where we are as a country. One thing on DeVos, I think, and, and this goes to like, does he get a rough ride in committee? She definitely got she definitely had a rough ride. But I think that to understand that you have to keep two things in your head. One is she was unprepared. She didn't do her work and she was not prepared for that confirmation hearing. And that was the beginning of what I think was a pattern. Uh, and she never she never dug out of that hole from the beginning. And she didn't she didn't put in the work and she has to own that. The second thing, though, that you have to keep in mind is like that exchange she had, for example, with um, Al Franken, which everybody likes so much. You know, if a Republican male senator had done that to a Democratic woman, all hell would be rightly breaking loose. He talked over her. He didn't let her answer. He did what you might call mansplaining. And honestly, he didn't have a full grip on the policy either. But because it was happening to her, like everybody cheered. And there's obviously a, there's obviously a double a double standard there. And I think like you have to, to look to look back on that. You have to hold both those things in your head. But again, most people want to default to one or the other because, you know, she's either Corella DeVille or she's like this terrible victim. And, you know, maybe maybe it's both. So let's talk about the first order challenges for the new secretary, assuming Cardona's confirmed. Uh, first up, I think glaringly coronavirus pandemic. Biden has talked about you know, getting schools back up in 100 days. Uh, what specifics do we know about Biden's plan in brief? And what is it that Cardona can do? And what does he need to do to get traction for the Biden administration's plan? Andy? I think there are a lot of hard questions. One, we've got this new variant of the virus. That's a huge variable in terms of what this looks like. Second, just Local conditions, it's been really interesting around the country. Like a lot of, we, we talk about reopening schools, but a lot of schools have been open. And now we've got some other big cities, to, you know, just this week when we're recording, Chicago is, is, is doing that. Uh, and it's very locally contingent. I think he's got a lot of issues on his plate and Biden's promise, which you can already see that it's starting to walk back. It was, we're going to open schools in a hundred days. Now it's like K-8 and adverbs, like mostly are starting to get sprinkled into the conversation. You can sort of see, because I think people realize this is, this is an enormous challenge and an easy goal, um, an easy goal to miss. That's the first order, but they're only going to have a short window for policymaking. I mean, it seems crazy to say with everything upon us, but like, 
the 2022 campaign season where control of both chambers will be up for grabs starts, you know, January 21st. So uh, they're gonna have a short window for getting a lot of stuff through. And so they're also gonna be trying to figure out how do you get through an agenda, stuff they wanna do on higher ed, on early ed, CTE. They've got ideas on wraparound supports for schools. There's a whole bunch of stuff. And so I think they're gonna be trying to figure out how to two track that um, against the backdrop where we may also be three tracking it because there'll be an impeachment uh, process going on. So that is, that's a tall order out of the gate uh, I think there will probably be some stumbles and I suspect any plan to reopen schools will not survive contact with the real world just because it's such a complicated situation. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the perspective to bring to this is, you know, 100 days after inauguration takes us to May 1st. I mean, the school year's, school year's basically over by then. It seems like perhaps the challenge really is let's get them open next year, right? Well, there could be next year could even be pretty disrupted. So, I mean, one thing one thing that the Biden people definitely have in their favor is in much of the country by May, you've had two months of warm weather. So the, the wave should should crest and, and, and ebb to some extent. So they've got, they've got that in their favor. It seems likely that in a lot of places, the fall school year could be disrupted as well. There may be parents who don't want to bring their kids back. There's been a move towards, in some places, concurrent instruction, which uh, seems very problematic. And and so I think we also, I worry, you know, last spring, everybody was talking about the fall as if the fall school year would be normal and this would kind of be in the rearview mirror and that we're sort of falling into that same sense of complacency again. There's going to need to be a lot of, of response fall 2021, it seems, even if the vaccine rollout and everything else goes goes well. Kids, by the way, won't be because they won't be vaccinated by then. Rick, what can Cardona do to help schools reopen? Does he have access to levers that are actually going to get traction? Uh, not a lot. I mean, being secretary in this, you know, is mostly pushing on a string. As we all know, you know, under normal circumstances, Washington controls, you know, 10 cents on the dollar of what we spend on schools. Obviously, uh, with what we're looking at under what, you know, it sounds like it's going to be a large CARES package in the first couple of weeks of Biden, probably talking about lots of money going out. You know, he, you know, he can make schools take this money, but he can't make them use it to open their doors. He can't make them use it in certain ways. So at the end of the day, mostly you're trying to push the dollars out there and hoping that folks are going to do what you want them to do. Uh, look, I mean, if we get, if we're talking about having lots of schools open for May 1st, like we just talked about, look, that's the, that's basically the end of the academic year. That's wrap up time. States or school districts might talk about extending into June, July, what have you. We'll, we'll see how those conversations play out. Uh, but at this point, kids are going to have been out of school by the time they're heading, you know, by the time we're looking at August and September, it's a year and a half since millions and millions of kids have actually been in school. That's going to be up in the air. So one question is, what are we doing in terms of the bully pulpit, in terms of making it clear that the expectation is kids need to be back uh, into some kind of routine? Two, the question is going to be, what are we expecting of educators? What do we expect of them to get vaccinated, whether or not they want to? Uh, what's the expectation of teachers? Uh, we're seeing this play out in Chicago right now. The Chicago uh, Teachers Union is going hard after Chicago Public Schools for expecting teachers to come back to work in communities where teachers are hesitant to come back. What what kind of signals are we going to be seeing coming out of the White House and the Department of Ed? There's a real question about what tools and resources and, and, and kind of dashboards are coming out of the Department of Ed. We haven't seen much. Famously, a lot of we got caught up in interagency fights between the White House and CDC and the department. I think a lot of superintendents and school boards are looking for cover. 
They want somebody to say, yeah, you know, it's okay to open your doors. Uh, you're not hanging yourselves out in terms of liability or political exposure. They haven't gotten that over the past 12 months. I think there's going to be a real question about whether there'll be more of that going forward. But look, at the end of the day, that's the stuff Cardona can do. Whether schools open or not is not something that the secretary really is going to have a decision on. And then the other interesting thing here is none of this is the stuff that the grassroots in the Democratic Party are excited about. What they're excited about is the higher ed stuff. They're excited about loan forgiveness, about free college, about doubling Pell. And so there's going to be the question about whether any of that stuff that the Sanders and the Warrens and the AOCs were really talking about over the last 18 months is going to get oxygen or not as you're wrestling with reopening. Let's be honest, Don. The one thing on reopening that the bully pulpit can do, and then hopefully Cardona can do, and I've seen some superintendents doing, we've got if you want schools to open, we've got to get a handle on communities spread. The the evidence is increasingly clear schools don't contribute to it, but they do reflect it and they're they're hostage to it. And, you know, it, I, there, was, there was a superintendent in Michigan who I thought sent a very courageous letter to his community where he was like, if you want to keep having parties and doing this stuff, you can't complain that we don't have schools open. Everyone's got to do their part. Wearing a mask is obviously an obvious piece of that that everybody can do and taking other basic distancing precautions. And, you know, the, the, the tone of the Trump administration has just been inconsistent to terrible on sort of some basic public health issues here. And hopefully just having somebody who can just challenge Americans just to be better, do our part for each other and, and support in, in these very basic ways. And that and look, that's not it's easy to criticize. Uh, it's easy to criticize sort of the anti-maskers, the people aren't running around. But that's also people who still feel like you have to you have there's some sort of constitutional right heretofore unknown to go to bars and restaurants and you have to be able to like eat in, in crowded cafes under tents and stuff like everybody needs to do their part uh, for a few months here. And I, I do think there may be a leadership role, an important one there. Yeah. You know, and Andy's Andy's just right here. In fact, there's a real opportunity, right? Because. What Andy just sketched is something that really needs to be said to the kind of I do what I want crowd on the right. That like, look, you you want your schools open? You got to you, you got to you got to like create some expectation that people aren't going to bars in your communities. You all got to give up going to restaurants for a few months. And that is much more compelling if it's also married to somebody saying, look, you're an educator. Your job is to go get vaccinated as soon as you can. Your job is if we're taking all of the reasonable precautions and we're providing PPE and we've got social distancing in place and we've got a clear plan, that your job is, unless you have comorbidities, to expect to show up and work. If you're just saying one half of that, especially how polarized we are, it feels like you're just adding to the culture war. It feels like you're either just going after the right or you're just going after kind of teachers. If you're saying these things together, it feels like you're talking about what we owe to each other and what we need to do together for the kids. You know, the Trump administration could not say this. Uh, they had no interest in saying it. They had no credibility to say it. Uh, I think President Bi President-elect Biden has put himself in a position where he can say these things. Cardona would seem positioned to say these things. And to Andy's point, I think if they said these things consistently and firmly, it, it, it could help significantly with these local politics. And the one other thing that I've been struck in the reopening and sort of operating schools, 
just a lack of imagination. There are some places that are doing a great job and are really like going above and beyond and trying to figure out how to do this. And, and they get it, they rightly get attention, but I worry that can obscure what is sort of the mean here. And I think there's a role to challenge people to be creative in how you use space and facilities, how you use time, how you deploy teachers, there is, you know, the it's the old, you know, Tayek and Cuban grammar of schooling is strong, but it applies here. And people, there's been a reluctance to rethink how you assign students to classes, different ways to, to accommodate these challenges. And I think part of that bully pulpit role, which is big, is if we're going to treat this as a national crisis, then we have to be sort of on a war footing to meet it. That means all options should be on the table to sort of how do we figure out how to, how to do that and... I don't think we've had that kind of, I don't think we've had that kind of leadership either. You can, you can, you can argue both ways, whether Betsy DeVos was right, that the, the, it wasn't the federal government's role to be tracking some of this stuff, but like, I don't know how you can argue that she shouldn't have been like pushing more for creative, immediate response and so forth. As Rick said, the Trump administration was completely out of position to be able to do any of that, but like, we need some of that. We need some that you've got to figure out how to meet every kid, even if it means doing things differently than you normally do. And I think we've all, anyone who's worked around schools during this time, we've had conversations that have, are frustrating because it's, it's, it's tied to this old way of who goes to what school building and what teacher does what and this kind of stuff. And I think we need someone to challenge people to think, think way outside of that for at least some period of time going forward. Speaking of difficult challenges, Last week, the Capitol building was stormed by a throng of Trump supporters in a failed attempt to overturn the election results. Seems to me the secretary has some challenge and uh, bully pulpit to address that. Rick, you wrote at Forbes that the attack on the Capitol was a call to duty for American educators. Can you say more about that and about what Cardona might be able to do to address that challenge? Sure. I mean, right. Part of this is that misinformation and lies have taken root in the right-wing ecosystem. Uh, most Republicans don't believe that President Trump lost the election. He did. He lost. People need to get over it. This thing has been extensively litigated. I don't know that any election in the history of our nation has been litigated as thoroughly. The charlatans and henchmen who've been trying to do Trump's bidding on this have not been able to find any evidence that would suggest a single one of these state elections, even these narrow elections, were wrongly decided because they just don't have any evidence. The stuff is craziness. But it has taken root and folks have bought into it. And what this is really is, it's about idea systems. It's about belief. It's about people's lack of understanding of what it takes to protect our freedoms, to protect their freedoms and their communities. Now, one response to this is, aha, it's not an educational problem. It's a right-wing crazy problem. That would be more credible if you don't look at the data after the 2016 election. After the 2016 election, a number of prominent Democrats continually said that President Trump did not was not legitimately elected. Even after two years of an expensive, extensive former FBI head running an investigation that turned no evidence of collusion, they continued to insist there was collusion. And as a consequence, more than 40% of Democrats don't believe that Trump won the 2016 election. Now, what we have here is a problem where neither side is inclined to believe that elections were free or fair if their side loses. Stacey Abrams, who was credited 
for her heroic work helping the Dems win the Georgia election a couple weeks ago, still hasn't conceded that she lost the 2018 gubernatorial election, insisting that it was crooked and unfair. If you continually tell people that the system is rigged, that it is not actually a system of liberty, that it is a system of oppression, that the Electoral College was born of slaveocracy, that what we saw in Kenosha, in Seattle, was mostly peaceful. It makes it really hard for anybody to believe that there are clear or principled or consistent standards under which we're going to live together. This stuff is stuff that pundits and politicians and all got to hash out. The challenge for educators is to help students, young students, college students, graduate students, understand all of the things that our system offers. It's been amazing to me to watch over the last week, people suddenly hail the importance of trust in institutions, of self-restraint, the value of police officers, who seemed to my, uh, to my eyes to have spent the better part of the last year berating all of these things as inadequate and supremacist and rooted in histories that are not actually about democracy or freedom. Schools have to be in the business of teaching kids what this inheritance we have is, why it's so valuable, what it takes to make it work. Of course, we should criticize it. Of course, we should critique it. Of course, we should be talking ad nauseum about what's wrong with it and how to do it better. But stripped of that fundamental foundation of understanding and what it is, why it's valuable, what lies on the other side if we don't have these things, and what it takes to make it work, you know, we're throwing ourselves open to things like insurrection and sedition. Frankly, uh, somebody with Cardona's background as an educator, as somebody who's come up the hard way, as somebody who has worked in schools and systems, is in a powerful position to help both sides wrestle with this. And I sure as hell hope he does. Andy? So it seems to me like there's a couple of things. What happened at the Capitol last week was just off the rails. And so I don't actually see it necessarily as like a civic education issue. It was an insurrection. It was seditious. And if there's a civics lesson there, it's going it, to, it is what stuff should people be held criminally accountable for? So for example, people who forcibly enter the Capitol and so forth. And then what stuff should people be held politically accountable for? Impeachment is a political process and the Senate's going to have to decide in the House, like people who egged, in, egged this on and continue to say the election was stolen and so forth. What's the political accountability there? That to me is the, that, that's the civics angle. The rest of it, it's just, it's outside of our, of our civic tradition. And there, there can sort of be, there can be no quarter for sort of sedition or insurrection in a liberal democracy. Like that's where we are. The broader problem, it seems to me, maybe civics, but also I think is a little different. Short term, how do we lower the temperature? Social media is killing us. It's, it's clear. It, it weaponizes everything. It is pushing information at humans at a level that we've never had information distilled and pushed at us like that. We're not handling it well. The media environment is, is, has now for quite a while been sort of set up to foster this, not on, on all sides, like you, it's curated, I think. And, and sort of Matt, um, Tabi, Tabai, I don't know how you say his last name, has got a book called Hate Inc. that I would recommend that is basically like this is the this is this is what happens when you the business model of media becomes its constituents rather than sort of advertising or some other model. 
The problem there, it's a complicated problem because most of the solutions would run afoul, I would say, you know, rightly so, would run afoul of the Constitution. And so unwinding that uh, is tricky. The longer term challenge, it seems to me, does involve civics, but also just more generally, how do we educate young people to be more resilient against this kind of information and misinformation and so forth, and just to be smarter consumers? Lots of different people came to Washington last week, including some you know incredibly malevolent people, and there were theocrats there and straight up racists and everything else. But there was also just like some dupes who were there, they genuinely thought this election was stolen and they had a part to play in this like American story. And to some extent, like they need to be accountable for that. And I'm not excusing that, but to some extent that's just a failure to teach people how to like think broadly and in any kind of a sophisticated way. And I think we have to have, a, that. that's the longer term. So we need some short-term stuff that I think is in some ways less about education and then long-term, you know, how do you do that? And and I, I wrote a piece the other day speculating that like we tend to default to civics, but maybe if some of that is teaching about statistics, probability, math, things like that may actually be stronger interventions to help people make sense of the of the world than civics. And I'm not discounting the importance of civics. It's, it's you know, as, as Rick knows, we've known each other a long time. It's important to me. It's something I've worked on in my career in a couple of different ways, but I'm not sure that we may not need to think more more broadly about how do you actually educate citizens to be resilient against crazy information that you have to be able to make heads or heads or tails of. You know, it's also obviously what we think civics means is one way to think about this. What's citizenship? You know, partly I think it's a question of rootedness. Obviously, you know, and I think Andy's point is right. Lots of these folks, I think dupes is probably the right term, just like I think lots of people who got caught up in what we've seen in other across the country earlier this summer uh, that were not, you know, were not insurrections, but were still hugely troubling to me. Oh, look, this is partly a problem of people trying to find community. They feel disconnected. They live in these online networks. They, this is how they find meaning. These are the voices they, they, they connect with. And look, I mean, part of this is how do we create a civic fabric that connects people in healthier, more grounded ways? so that they're not going and looking for that sense of purpose and meaning by carrying Confederate flags into the U.S. Congress, but actually are trying to do things that are healthy and constructive. Because, you know, I mean, one of the things we've seen, I think, over long periods of time is that people want to feel a part of something. If If they don't have that, they will find it. And we just saw last week thousands of people, malicious or otherwise, finding it in the most unacceptable form imaginable. Yeah. I think Rick just put his finger on something interesting. So the Confederate flags got attention because that was shocking. And I mean, that was a stunt that not even the Confederates themselves were able to pull off during the Civil War. And it and it was moronic. You're showing up to accuse your government officials of being traitors and committing treason with a flag that represents <laughs> being a traitor and, and committing treason. It, it's it's moronic and, and all of that. But what I what also struck me is the number of Trump flags, which I mean, they were hard to miss in any picture to to Rick's point about sort of needing to give people purpose or fill something in. It's a weird kind of idolatry. And it is most American political movements have not been about a person. There are people who have represented those movements, but they weren't about them. Like, you know, in the pre-war period, the America firsters. They, they weren't about Lindbergh. He was about America first. Even like Robert E. Lee and Jeff Davis, like the 
Confederacy was about slavery. They were about perpetuating slavery. The Confederacy wasn't about Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis, right? I, and and this this so this this thing of like people coming with like about a person and with flags and 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 sort of all the various kinds of sort of insignia about him was something different in American in American political life and 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 troubling and and I think we uh, we should pause. I don't quite know exactly what it means or where it goes, but it, it's something we don't generally see. And to have politics so centered on one person is a trend, I think, also worth watching. Well, fellas, I brought you on here to talk to, uh, to you about a Connecticut commissioner of education, and we ended up talking about the fundamental problems of our day. So uh, we'll see. Uh, Miguel Cardona has certainly no, not responsibility for these things, but he's got a role to play. And uh, after he's had a couple of years at it, we'll bring him back on to talk about this in retrospect. Thanks for coming on the report card. Thanks for having us, Nat. Hey, good to be with you guys. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guests, Rick Hess and Andy Rotherham. I also want to thank our producer, Matt Rice, who makes these podcasts possible. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And when you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. It helps other folks find the show. As always, you can send your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.